Hello, and welcome to this edition of Secure Networks, the Index Packet Forensic Files with your host, Michael Morris. This episode's very special guest is Dimitri McKay, Principal Security Strategist and CISO Advisor at Splunk. Dimitri, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Uh, well, I've been in security my entire career. Uh, started at a search engine uh, a few decades back, and okay. uh, I have such gray hair, so I've been in security for far too long. Uh, I've done everything from pen testing to vulnerability assessment work, and now I spend my time helping customers mature their security programs. Excellent. Well, we're, I've been super excited to have you as a guest because I, I know your background, and, and Splunk's a great partner of ours. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about in this episode is we've been hearing a lot about uh, organizations really having challenges managing security at scale, at, at scale. Pardon me. So let's start off from your perspective by what does it mean to you to have security at scale? Security at scale to me involves a few things. So first off, I'd say it's it's complexity. Uh, the larger the threat landscape, the, the higher number of potential entry points that the attackers can exploit. And with that, it's also more and more uh, complex systems. Uh, so that can be difficult to secure. Mm -hmm. On top of that, you end up with uh, what I consider to be a configuration diversity. So different types of devices and software and configurations and more people that need to maintain them. And those can become outdated and, and become a, a platform for a hack. Uh, you've got compliance challenges and the bigger the company, uh, the more stakeholders are involved. And uh, depending on the regulation and the standards, uh, that can be that can be a little overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, lastly, I'd say uh, it's, it's the user experience, I think, is a, is a big one. Uh, as companies get bigger and security gets tighter, you end up with this scale between security and usability. And in my opinion, that, that creates a ton of friction. Right. Frankly, I think security needs to be, if you're successful, it needs to be as transparent as possible. Make it easy for people to come in and do their job without uh, making it difficult for them. Uh, customers uh, talk about this quite a bit where they're trying to secure, 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 but the reality is it, it makes it frustrating for the user. No, that's a great point. And if it's too difficult, people will look for ways to circumvent the processes, right? Which then just opens up Pandora's box. So that's a great point. I haven't heard a lot of people talk about that. So I, I really um, think that's great that you're highlighting that. So what are you seeing some of the biggest challenges? I mean, you mentioned a few little things there, but challenges for organizations to really implement and implement it thoroughly, strong security at scale. I'd say the first one is a lack of leadership buy-in. Great point. You're going to be successful. And we see this in different verticals uh, approach different ways. Um, the financial vertical always has leadership buy-in. They have budget. They, mm -hmm. they can get the right people and uh, the products, the tools that they need. But any security program to be accept, uh, really accepted and successful uh, requires leadership buy-in and leadership support. Because uh, if the, honestly, if se senior executives don't make it a priority, um, then it's, it's difficult to get the right resources. Uh, secondly, a lot of people focus on being reactive instead of proactive. And what I mean by that is mm -hmm. security 
becomes a very knee-jerk reaction. Um, it's almost like the hierarchy of needs where right. uh, people can't see the strategic view because they're too busy uh, trying to focus on the things that are ha- happening on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a, a challenge with uh, security at scale. Um, inadequate risk management becomes a big one. Uh, I often ask, what are you trying to protect? And I've heard uh, folks have a, a very tight list of the crown jewels. I've had others tell me, well, everything is important. And of course, my <laughs> response is, well, then nothing is important because, right. you know, what goes in the safe, the wife's jewelry or the dog's toys? What's more important? And um, I'd say resources is a big one, insufficient resources. If we look at how companies mature their security program, most start off with IT folks or development folks as security people. And maybe they'll pull in an MSSP as a, as a way to, for a low price, have a security program, but it doesn't actually have security people. Um, mm. Process and technology are, are how we build security programs. So insufficient resources, I think, is a big one. You need humans to do this stuff. Right. And, and that's a big one. Uh, last one I'd say is probably collaboration and communication between the various teams. I think for too long, uh, we in security were looked at as the people who say no to everything. Right. <laughs> Not wrong with that. We were very much the people who said no, but uh, successful programs have a relationship with IT. They have a relationship yeah. with legal. They have a relationship <clears throat> with our in development and they work together. And I think that's that's a challenge at scale. Uh, no, that's it. That's what we do it. That's a great point. It's like uh, I've heard the analogy: security teams are thought of as the new legal department for operations, right? So, <laughs> true, true. pick on our lawyer friends, right? So, yeah. where are you? Where are you seeing most organizations fall short in their strategies and approaches? For being successful, I mean, you nailed some really big talk topics there. Um, so, where what, what's the most common one where people are really falling short? Hmm. Choose one. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't have to be just one, but uh, I think there's a couple that I think you know, are worth talking about. I'd say the first one is having a comprehensive risk assessment. Yeah. Uh, if I was to start as a CISO somewhere, the first thing I would do, the absolute first thing would be a risk assessment, a security assessment. I need to understand the lay of the land, where the challenges are, and and really the baseline. Because mm-hmm. if I'm, I'm going to go from there, I need to know if the things that I'm implementing are making a difference. Um, the, the second thing I think is a, a, a big one is probably thinking more strategically than tactically. So mm. the question I often ask is, okay, this is where you are, but where do you want to be in six months, nine months, right. two years? And let and, and map to that. And I often come in as sort of the strategic thinker to map out the entire program. Mm-hmm. Well, that's If you're going to get on the right path, you need to have a strategic vision in mind, not just knee-jerk reaction. No, that, that's a great point. And one of the things I keep hearing on that front is, don't design more for resiliency, right? Um, so th- things you you take hits and you you're more resilient to recover for them. 
Um, because it's not if, but when you're going to be breached or hacked or attempted to be breached, um, and, and how resilient have you built yourself to be? So I think that's a tremendous point on your part. What What are some, um, you know, you, you said if you were starting a CISO, so you kind of maybe got some of it here in this question anyway, uh, but what are some things you would start with to get an organization on the right path for just improving their security posture, right? If they're starting at zero, where do they, what's the first step they take, right? Yeah. I think the first question needs to be, and it's funny because I do a talk on this <laughs> about building and maturing a security program. Where do you start is the unicorn that exists in security, or I guess in this case doesn't exist, which is what are you trying to protect? Yeah, yeah. The number of customers I meet who don't have a CMDB, it's a unicorn. No one has one. Right. But if I look, that's like the number one thing that all of these uh, security best practices and, and frameworks require. Uh, you need to figure out what you're trying to protect and work backward from there. Uh, I think that's a big one. And if mm. it's, you know, what's the goal? So are you trying to protect data? Are you trying to meet compliance? In, in some places, security is secondary to compliance. And we've seen that for years. We've seen that since 2006 with HIPAA and PCI. Yeah, yeah. And that still exists. Now, I'm a global resource, so I, I work all over the world, and I see, based on the different geos, what those priorities can be. Right. If it's compliance, then that's going to take a very different path than we're trying to protect uh, this infrastructure. No, that, that's a great point. And, and you and I are in a number of large healthcare and financial organizations in terms of some of our customer base um, and we definitely see that, uh, you know, are you protecting data for, you know, customer transactions, PI information, or what, what is it? And uh, you, you nailed it on the head. It's uh, it, it varies your path if, if you're going to go that route. Yeah. So one big tenant of, of Splunk is having the data platform for everything. I, I think that was your mantra for a while. Maybe it still is a little bit. Um, how can the right data and a sensible view of that data really improve your security posture? Sure. Well, and I talk about a risk assessment, but again, I come back to what are you trying to protect? Yeah. Um, it, we've seen in the past that what people started with was uh, authentication logs and, and pulling in firewall logs. And, and those are great. But a lot of that was because everyone had those things and, so people started there, but that was really focused a lot on IT risk, mm -hmm. business risk. So with that risk assessment, what are the business risks? What are the, how does the company make money? What are the applications that uh, provide resources for that? And then work backward from there. Those are the things to protect. Those are the things that you want to prioritize getting data from. Mm -hmm. And and really just work backward from there. Uh, we it's funny because there's a, a sort of an onboarding of data maturity that we we've, we've seen over time. Like for example, people don't start out with hey let's pull in DNS data, but it's hugely valuable. Right. <laughs> they don't start with let's grab DHCP. Hugely valuable, but people don't start there. Uh, I am happy to hear and. and a lot of customers are focusing on this is endpoint went from no one was capturing it to it being one of the top five data sources. Right. Uh, 
but again, what are you trying to protect and what's the goal? So if it's you're trying to secure a thing, that's going to be defined with uh, data sets for that. But if it's compliance, that that can often be, there's a Venn diagram, but hmm. often be a very different set of data sources. So make decisions, you need data. If you're going to meet compliance, you got to have data. If you're going to respond quickly to threats and attacks, you got to have the right data. No, that's excellent point. And all those all those areas are widely different sets of data. And like you said early on in that in that answer, um, you know, people started with firewall logs and authentication logs. And I mean, you and I both know there's so many malware now that specifically is taking out those those kind of base logs to really hide and obfuscate where things have gone, right? So uh Th those aren't necessarily sources that can be solely counted on anymore, right? So yeah. it's funny um, you, brought, you brought up resiliency earlier, and it's funny because let's be honest. Like, and anyone who's a CISSP will know this, right? It's a CIA triad: it's confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Now, in security, we were focused on confidentiality and we were focused on integrity, but availability, we didn't care. Like unless it was, unless the thing was indicative of something malicious, we just didn't care. It was somebody else's problem. But boy, uh, DOS attacks and and ransomware just changed all of that. So I'll be honest, I'm. I think it's a buzzword, and a lot of people aren't really digging into what that means. But I think it's necessary. It, it's pulling together uh, IT and development and security tighter, so that listen, you're right. It's not if, it's when. And if it happens, how fast can you get back in action? And it's true. It's how quick? Yeah, how quickly can you contain it, right? And limit the spread, limit the damage. And I you know, I was thinking about um, some of the, I uh, read an article the other day about some of the dwell times and some of these zero-day threats, right? It's, yeah. it's just amazing how long some of these malwares are scanning and, doing reconnaissance on networks. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's almost an impossible challenge. And, uh, you know, this is why I've, I've really embraced the word resiliency because that's what it's, what it's become about. Right. So one of the things on the resilient front that, um, and I know obviously Splunk has invested heavily in this with some things you've done, SOAR platforms um, are, are becoming must haves really for a lot of large organizations. So again, talking about a scale, simply because of the volume of, of alerts and alarms, you get data from so many different places coming in saying, oh, this isn't right, this isn't right. So what are your recommendations for our listeners who are thinking about deploying a solar platform? You know, Where do they start? How do they even get going? Because that's almost a whole nother ball of wax on top of the the, the base security problem, shall we say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I'll be honest, like, as much as I love SOAR, I always looked at SOAR as being a feature hmm. that should have existed within uh, SIM platforms. And we're seeing more and more of that integration mm -hmm. between uh, SIM platform and SOAR and ML. And this has been going on with, with SIM becoming more of a bigger and bigger entity. But the three things that and it's almost there's a maturity of this also. Um, people acquire SOAR really for, for three things. 
we talk about the mass volume of alerts. You're right. Um, and so people will adopt a SOAR first uh, as a way to reduce noise. There's too many alerts. We need to either get rid of them, the false positives, or automate the response of them. 100%, right? And it's usually low impact stuff. Right. And we have so many people. And so we need to point the resources at the most important things. The second thing people use a sort platform is uh, the capturing of context. So the first 30 minutes of every investigation is the same. I have a token. Now I need to figure out what this is. So I might take that and go look on virus total. I might take that and go look at threat data. I might... But there's a process that a analyst is going to take, and it takes about 30 minutes. When people adopt SOAR, it, sort of phase two is automate the process of taking that token and checking all the things, and then bring it all into one place right. so the analyst has it the moment they get in. And that saves a ton of time. Right. And yeah. once you have sort of higher fidelity information about the thing, then you can start looking at sort of the third phase, which I call block and tackle. And block and tackle would be, and if, when I was pen testing, this would have hurt my feelings quite a bit, but blocking <laughs> and tackle would be things like automation of the reset of credentials. Right. Or if we suspect that there's ransomware or some infected machine, take it and move it to its own VLAN. Still has access to the internet, but let's, Let's also kick off PCAP on that VLAN to see what's really going on. What's the communication look like? Things like that, that we're honestly afraid to do in security. And we have been for a long time because there's fear that this could you know, take down the network or cause more problems. But with higher fidelity detections and higher fidelity case management, we're more comfortable doing higher fidelity block and tackle. And that to me is, that's how we really make a dent and reduce risk. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I mean, as I was telling you before we started the session here of we're seeing more of our customers um, want to use the continuous recorded packet data that we have and, and preserve that, right? Put it with the other data that the analyst needs. So now they have the network forensics, the network evidence tied with their authentication logs, their application logs, all the credentials that you described. Um, so definitely... We, we, we're seeing the exact same thing. So I, I think you're spot on on that. Um, what are some things SOC should avoid when rolling out a SOAR tool? Well, I think there's a few things that I think are, are, are a big one. Um, lack of planning. So oftentimes when we talk to customers about automation, we'll ask, what are you hoping to automate? Mm -hmm. And they say, well, well, what are other people? Automate? <laughs> uh, it's, and it's sort of a, a, sort of a vicious circle. Um, I'd say automate anything that you're doing more than three times. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, it's just repetitive and you're, you're, you're not using your resources effectively. Um, the second one is <sighs> there's, there's a lot of work. SORP is complex. And you require development resources to do all of those integrations. And I, I'd say that one of the mistakes that people make is either not having the development resources to do those integrations or not choosing 
a SOAR platform that uh, works with the tools they have. Mm -hmm. So awesome that XYZ SOAR tool works with, you know, whatever list, but because are you building your entire security program around some very specific standardized tools? Make sure that your tool works with it. Um, And uh, the, the other two things I'd say is, is not involving the right stakeholders. We've seen a number of times where a SOAR project will fail because they're not getting the right people involved, security operations team, the, right. the, the relevant stakeholders who control those uh, other things. Uh, that can be a that can be a big one. And then lastly, neglecting training. <laughs> Great point. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're complex tools and need to be treated as such. And although yeah. there's a big push for all sort of platforms to move towards no code, which I'm so excited about, <laughs> reality is today they, they do still require yeah. some development resources. Yeah. Well, and I, I'd love to tie it back to answer you gave early on. You got to have a vision, a plan of where you're going, right? Because you can't, you can't start developing playbooks and writing the code that's required if you don't have a much longer term vision, right? This isn't a, two-week or two-month exercise, this is a two-year kind of vision you've got to set, right? Yeah. No, excellent point. There's one other thing which... You can't do really effective automation until you have those higher fidelity detections. Hmm. However you do it. But focus first on your detections, making sure that if they trigger, they are a real threat. Yeah. And then automate uh, automate from there, uh, you know, after you focus on getting rid of a lot of that noise. But higher fidelity alerts offer better, uh, higher fidelity responses. Yep. No. Excellent point. So, Dimitri, one question I always like to close our, our sessions with, um, ask you to be a little bit of a prognosticator. Um and so for our listeners, what's what's one thing you would suggest they they keep an eye out on or think about over the next six to 18 months? And 18 months is an eternity in cybersecurity. But uh, if, if you were to highlight something that people should kind of keep their ears perked up on, what would that be? Uh, I think something top of mind, and I'll say this because I was playing with it earlier. I was playing with OpenAI. Oh, and- okay. God, it's amazing. So <laughs> right now, if you want to roll out a SIM or a SOAR, again, like we talked about, you have to put development resources behind it. You have to build integrations, build automations. You need a program. Being able to lean on something like OpenAI, and I was I was building SPL and using like some complicated stuff like TSTATs, using OpenAI, and I just thought, oh, my God, this is magic because... I hate the concept of, of, oh, we have that Splunk person. It's one person. <laughs> oh, that kills me. I want everyone to be able to use the platform. Right. But you have to know special languages. And let's use Splunk, for example. You have to know SPL. If, you know, Splunk's a uh, processing language. Mm-hmm. You, you might need, a, I don't know, Python for SOAR integrations. You'll yep. need JavaScript uh, for dashboarding or, or real Java for leveraging the SDK. That kills me that there's all these languages that in security we have to know. And this can be sort of a barrier to, to even getting into 
security. We talk about this, you know, millions of jobs that are available. But if you if you look on message boards, you have to know all these languages and, and there's a barrier to entry. Yeah. But with something like OpenAI and ChatGPT and, and all these, wow, now we can really roll out things like natural language processing, where you can just talk to the thing and get a response. And, and yeah. to me, that, that's the magic. But um, the reality is, I guess when we get to that point, the attackers will be trying to poison the AI with uh, garbage data, with whatever. It's yeah. Awesome. Do you think? Do you think that's happening already? That's a good, great question. It's funny. A few of the folks on our side are starting to use and uh, play with Chat GTP as well, and um, just for even honestly, your Google searches start moving them to there. You get way more sophisticated answers, right? Yeah. Yeah. But- but I think there's there's two challenges with that. I mean, how does Google make money? It's through advertising. Who pays for that? There's all these individual websites. But if you're using something like ChatGPT, it's it's giving you a response without sending you to anyone, uh, any of these websites that would normally give you that information. So I think that's kind of an interesting challenge. Yeah, yeah. Is subscription or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, and I was talking about this movie earlier, um, Ex Machina. Like the the in it, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. Uh-huh. This gentleman builds a android, essentially. And, okay. And, and she sort of develops uh, into someone with emotions, and or at least gives the impression of that. And he could do it because he had a he owned a search engine. So he had a massive data set and he had tons of processing power. Uh, and to me, I, I, I thought, wow, you know, that's, those are the people who really will have the power to do this. Mm. But as far as poisoning the AI, <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about where these tools are gathering information. And, and I had asked a colleague, I said, do you think they're building some of this stuff based on the questions posted in a, in a forum, which is usually like terrible, or the answers in a response, which is actually really good code, you know, it could go either way. So yeah. we may certainly be poisoning the AI. Interesting, interesting. Good, good thought though on the uh, open AI. I, I, I definitely think that's going to play into a lot of technology options moving forward. So, yeah. Dimitri, thank you for taking time out of your busy day to to join us and join our listeners and share your tremendous insights on how to better secure networks. We'd ask our listeners to tune in next time for another edition of the Endace Packet Forensic Files. For more information about Endace's network packet capture platform and our integrations with our fusion technology partners like Splunk, please go to endace.com. So, Dimitri, again, thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Appreciate you having me. All right. Thank you, sir.